evening scripture reading will come from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 16 through 18. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Despite popular opinion, I do not need that. And I don't normally like to call attention to myself, but I've had several people comment on my my outfit today. And the best one, I think, was someone asked me if Johnny Cash dressed me this morning. (laughs) Which is a whole lot better than the time someone asked me if uh, Stevie Wonder had dressed me. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for for getting that, Sam. I feel like this is an incredibly important series of lessons because it it really is, is a defining sort of of series of studies about what is most important in a Christian's life. In in reality, this morning's lesson was a lesson on choices because perhaps overarching decision, choice that must be made by everyone is our worldview. So do we believe that God created the heavens and the earth and, and that he placed us here on this earth and man has an eternal soul? If you were here this morning, you were a part of that discussion. But choices is, is, is so important because everybody's life is, is really com- comprised of, of choice, uh, an endless series of choices. And, and we, we talked about that in, I think, lesson one or two of this series. So I'm not going to go back and rehash all of that. But I just want to remind you that our lives are made or, or broken by our choices. The quality of those choices. And I hope this series will help us to at least direct our minds and our thoughts and our hearts in the direction of making sure that the choices that we make are, are those that, that God would be pleased with and that would, would enhance our own spiritual development every day of our lives. Because those choices, I guarantee you, mo- most of them are not neutral. They're going to either be bringing us closer to God and to his people, or they will be driving us farther away. But there are a lot of different ideas and notions that come to mind when we use the word when we use the word balance, and that's what our, our, our discussion is about tonight. Choose the right balance. And balance is critical, in, in, especially in, in ideological and theological circles, because we've we got to make sure, just as Solomon said in the Ecclesiastes passage that's used in our text, it's, it's very possible to be overly wise. And, and you may read that passage, and how in the world could you do that? But it, it, it's possible to have the wrong approach to life, to have too much, of this or that, and, and thus to wind up imbalanced. There is the need, for example, biblically speaking, uh, of balance between doctrine and attitude. That is, you can be doctrinally straight, you can be right in accordance with God's word in terms of, of what you believe doctrinally, but you can have a lousy attitude. And then, on the other hand, you can have a wonderful attitude you know, a great spirit about you, but if you're not doctrinally correct, then what does that get you other than just an imbalanced life? And there's also the matter of, of emotions as well as, as, as intellect. 
We can have a very rational approach to our Christianity or we can have an emotional approach and either one of those by themselves is going to be an imbalance. There needs to be some balance in our lives. There is some emotion in Christianity, but there's also the come let us reason together factor that is a part of our Christianity. So we need to make sure that we have that balance between emotions and intellect. There's the need for balance in the attention that we give ourselves spiritually as compared to the degree of concern that we demonstrate to others around us who in fact are in a lost condition. So if I'm just focused on me, and if I'm only intent and concerned about my own spiritual development, that within itself is well and good, but if that's the only thing that I'm focused on, then I'm not going to be looking around me for opportunities to be able to share the good news with others and take people to heaven with me. So there's got to be that balance as well. I also want to submit that congregations need balance as much as do individual Christians. Congregations have their own personality just like we do, like we as as individuals do. Some congregations are concerned with evangelism. Other congregations are concerned only with the edification of the body and the maturation of the believer. There are social issues that are of great concern in some congregations, while other congregations give them no attention whatsoever. They completely ignore them. So it takes a portion of each of these elements to create a a, a balanced church, one that reflects, and I think this is the key to our discussion tonight, the key is we need to have the kind of balance that reflects the priorities that Jesus demonstrated during his ministry on earth. And so if we're ever, you know, faced with the conundrum of, okay, how can I have that kind of spiritual balance in my life? Just go back and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And look at what Jesus considered to be priorities in his life, in his ministry. And then if you will track that and replicate that in your own spiritual development, then you will always be spiritually safe. And so we've got to do that. Even preaching in our churches can be unbalanced. I know that comes as a shock to some of you, but we we really can be unbalanced in terms of the material that we present. We can... Preachers sometimes are known to to ride hobby horses, you know, and and get on a particular favorite issue and and stay on it. I'm sure you've all heard the story, haven't you, about the guy that was always forevermore preaching on water baptism. And, and, And one Sunday it would be water baptism, next Sunday, guess what, water baptism. And so the elder sat him down, he was rather young, and sat him down and said, we need some balance from what we're getting from the pulpit. And so, why don't you preach on something other than water baptism? And he said, like what? He said, why don't you preach on Noah? So the next Sunday he got up and he opened the Bible to Genesis chapter 3. Some of you know the payoff. And he said, Noah built an ark and the world was inundated with water, which brings me to my subject, water baptism. So even in preaching, especially maybe in preaching, we can, we can have an imbalanced approach. But well-rounded Christians are in the best position to grow the right kind of spiritual fruit. And I think that's what we're in it for. I think everyone is here tonight because we're interested in, in, in producing the right kind of spiritual fruit in our lives. And it's for that reason that we need to stand ready to do whatever is necessary to make sure that we stay balanced. Let's consider some basic elements for growing quality fruit by staying I got four ways that we can stay balanced tonight, or maybe four issues that we need to be concerned about in terms of the spiritual balance in our lives. And the first of which is a balance between building and battling. Now that may sound a little bit strange, and it certainly does require some explanation. There was a young lady that once asked me, what's your opinion of the churches that insist on taking extreme positions about social and political issues? 
Well, by the way she framed the question, I sensed that she wanted to state her own opinion more than she wanted to hear my answer to that question. And so I, I, I did that. I said, so, but what, what do you think? What, what is your judgment on that matter? And she replied, well, I, I guess it's good that they're concerned about things like pornography and abortion and other such issues. But I think that we, I think we ought to just be preaching the gospel because it's the gospel that will change the world. Well, you know what? She's exactly right in that second statement. It is the gospel that will change the world. But we've got to know what the Bible thinks of and regards as the gospel. What is the good news? Is it just talking about Jesus only? Or is it talking about the things that Jesus talked about while he was here upon this earth during his three and a half year ministry? So the gospel will change the world, no doubt about that. There's no argument. But sometimes standing for something means that we also have to stand against certain things. And I think if you've read the New Testament, and especially Matthew 23, you'll see that Jesus got in hot water over and over and over again, especially with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of their day, because of some of the things that he stood against, the things that he would not stand for, as well as the things that he did stand for. And it's by what we stand for and what we stand against that others can see the fruit of righteousness in our lives. Allow me to illustrate the point. In the closing months of the Civil War, General Sherman marched through my home state of Georgia, and he decimated it. I mean, there was a swath of destruction through that state that was absolutely incredible, burning almost everything in sight. A man by the name of John Schmitz fought under Sherman's command. So he was a part of that, of, of that delegation that, that burnt their way through the state of Georgia all the way to the coastline. And, and Mr. Schmitz first came to Georgia fighting for a cause during the Civil War in which he believed, but he returned later after the war was over as the builder of community. You see, Mr. Schmitz was an architect, and he put his knowledge to work rebuilding what he had earlier helped to destroy. And he designed and built several buildings that is, at least from what I've read, are still, still there in Adairsville, Georgia, one of the places that, that, that he settled and began to rebuild the South. So, so here's a man who at one time was, was destroying a part of an army, but destroying everything that he saw. Then he came back later and began to rebuild that. The point is, there is a time spiritually for building, and there is a time for battling. When Peter replied to Jesus, when Jesus said, Whom do men say that I am? And you remember in Matthew 16, 18, Peter's response was, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus, in turn, responded to Peter by saying, And you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. Now, how does that relate to the illustration? Well, what did Jesus mean by his prediction? Well, what does he mean when he says, I will build my church, and specifically, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? Well, I think one thing, one key takeaway from, from our examination of that passage would be that gates can't attack. Gates are solely defensive. And so you're not going to have to worry about, whoa, there comes a gate, he's carrying a sword. No, gates are just there to, to protect something. And so they're totally defensive. And so in this exchange in Matthew 16, I, I really see the picture of the church on the offensive battering down the gates of hell. The gates of hell, Jesus said, when I build my church, are not going to be able to prevail against that kingdom. 
You know, just as a farmer, in order to be successful, has to both plant and weed. If he does one without the other, he's not going to be able to grow a very successful crop. It requires the planting, of course, but you also have to pull the weeds out or else all that seed that you planted will be for naught. Jesus expects us to be the salt and the light in the world. He made that clear in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Salt preserves and it adds flavor, while light illuminates and it shows the way. Christians are the builders of society, but we cannot single-handedly stamp out every ungodly action that's taking place in our world. We understand that. So there is a time when we need to battle the forces of darkness, Satan and everyone who works for him. But there are also times when we need to make sure that we're in the building process. We don't just just spend our life on the defensive. We've also got to go on the offensive. Here's a second area in which we need to develop the right kind of balance. And that is there needs to be balance between the work and the word. Here's what I mean by that. And, And it happens too often Only the names and the details of what I'm about to relate to you really change. Sam is not his real name, but that's the name we're going to go by. Sam became a Christian. He was naturally excited about his new status. He was genuinely motivated in order to, by his newfound faith, to go out and and serve the Lord and serve his community for the name of Christ. And he gladly accepted every new job that was offered to him down at church. Any of the deacons knew that if they needed help, all they had to do was just dial up Sam and he would help them in whatever it was that they had uh, to do. And his enthusiasm really knew no limits. Well, after a short period of time, he agreed to teach a class of junior boys. If you ever taught a class of junior boys, you know he has just jumped in on the deep end. And so he agreed to do that. He got involved in the weekly visitation program. He led singing some. He took his turn at mowing the church lawn, performing tasks that were too numerous to mention. And everyone was thrilled with Sam. I mean, his growth was the talk of the entire church. Everybody was was discussing how Sam had just... Jumped, got in, caught on fire and jumped in to let people see him burn. Several people proclaimed, you know what this church needs is more Sam's. But then Sam's attendance started to slip. He neglected some of the responsibilities that he had signed on for. There was one Sunday where his junior class boys were sitting in their appropriate classroom and there was nobody to teach them. Sam had not showed up. And he had not called anyone to tell them that he needed a substitute for his class. And then it wasn't long until Sam could be seen back at the local bar with his old gang, bending an elbow and boozing it up. And people in the congregation were understandably devastated. And they said, what happened to Sam? He was doing so well. You know, sad to say, there are a lot of Sams that have appeared and disappeared through the years in churches all across our nation. Too much responsibility, coupled with too little grounding in the word, have resulted in spiritual burnout for a lot of people. So that's why I'm saying there needs to be a balance between the work and the word. How much time am I spending in the word? Is it all my time? Then I don't have time for service. How much time am I spend working, doing church work, so that I don't really have any devotional time, any time to really ground myself or to be grounded in Bible classes or whatever by the Word of God? So there's a lack of balance, and, and, and Sam was just overloaded. How can we avoid 
spiritual casualties like Sam? I think that's the question. We, we can be sure to, to maintain balance between our devotional life and our Christian service. That's one way we can do it. No one would deny that we are saved to serve. In fact, sometimes we, it takes us years to learn that lesson. We are saved to serve, not to be served, but to serve others. But we would be unwise, I think, to ignore the spiritual preparation that enables us to have a solid foundation for that servanthood. If I'm not grounded in the word of God, then I have no real basis for, for my service. After all, you can't give away what you don't have. And if I don't have that, that close, viable, personal relationship with the Father, I, I, as, as hardworking as I might be, I, I am never going to be able to effectively share that good news with anyone around me. Not even the Apostle Paul took over leadership roles immediately after he became a disciple. I think the Bible record indicates that he first became a student himself. Let me tell you what I mean by that. First he studied with the disciples at Damascus. That's Acts chapter 9 and verse 19. And then he, he went to Arabia for three years. Every commentary, commentary that I have read say that at least ostensibly he went there in order to, to grow, to, to ground himself. To prepare himself for that ministry, that's the reference, by the way, is in Galatians 1.18, if you want to check that out for yourself sometime. But I'll remind you that Jesus himself spent 30 years in preparation for a three-year ministry. We've got to spend some time grounding ourselves and being grounded in the Word of God. And I think that we're all in tacit agreement on that point. It's critical that this balance be realized in our lives. The other side of the balance coin is that we can... We must not spend all of our time just learning the word, but then never giving any time for service. That's possible too, isn't it? We can just be Bible class people. You know, I'm always there. I'm studying scripture at home. I never miss an opportunity to study the Bible down at church. But I don't really ever, and I hope you take this the right way, I don't ever really do anything. I, that my study of and knowledge of the Word of God does not motivate me or move me. It's no kind of incentive to get me out of my recliner doing what it is I need to be doing in Christian service. I'm all talk and no walk. One preacher I know of, hang on for this, by the way, this is his word, not mine, so don't get offended at me. He refers to some people in the church where he preaches as spiritual porkers. P-O-R-K-E-R-S, and he says he's using that term for those who feast at the trough of biblical knowledge without ever rendering any real service to the Lord. Let's face it, there's a danger if any of us is overtaught and underworked. Here's a third area where we need spiritual balance, and that is between secular and Christian fellowship. How many times has this statement been made about someone who's in a spiritual skid? That person is just spending too much time with the wrong crowd. Kind of like the Sam we talked about earlier. If you start, you know, hanging around your old drinking buddies, then you might as well just go ahead and, and mark that down. There's a spiritual casualty because that, that's the likelihood for a lot of folks. And so it, we can spend time in the wrong crowd. It's certainly true that the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, that evil companionships corrupt good morals. So that is a matter of biblical record. Now, the other extreme, though, is if we narrow our circle of friends to include only those who are already Christians, stay with me now, severely lessening the likelihood that I will ever lead anyone to the Lord. So that's a possibility as well. 
I can so abandon all the people in the world and be so infatuated with my new fellowship with people who are inside the church that the only friends I have now are, guess what, people in the church. I don't have anybody, any contact, anyone that I can viably share the good news with anymore. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, if I've understood the biographical record of his, of his life and ministry correctly, always tried to emphasize to his disciples how that they needed to make those contacts, not to share in, in the worldly activities of their old friends, but to make those contacts in order to lead them to the Lord. And, and that's a completely different proposition than going back into the world and associating the world so that you can be worldly. That's not what he was saying at all. And that's certainly not what we're recommending or encouraging. But, but how do we find that balance between fellowship with Christians and friendships with those outside the church? It is admittedly a tough question. But I do know this, if I may illustrate, an automobile from, on occasion needs to be taken to the gas station for refueling. Some of you may need to take notes on this. Uh, if, you've ever, if you've ever had, the, especially in an embarrassing context, the situation where you've run out of gas in the least advantageous time ever, then, then uh, you know what I'm talking about. You've got to take a car in. You've got to put some gas in it from time to time. And that's what, that's what Christian fellowshipping ought to be to the child of God. It ought to be a, a refueling for us. We ought to recharge our batteries when we're around people of like precious faith. I mean, we're with people, this, this time of the, of, the, of the week is a time that ought to be cherished by God's people because we're able to draw on one another, build one another up, edify one another, and leave encouraged and not discouraged. And, and even as our prayer expressed it tonight, there are times when we read the paper, watch the news, and we just get sick, well, don't we? I mean, that's the reality of the world we're living in. And so how refreshing it is to come to, and to be with and to fellowship God's people. So I'm, I'm refueling when I do that. But watch this, and, and everybody knows this. You don't have to take notes on this part. A, an automobile that remains at the gas station is of no use to anyone. I mean, you take it in, you know, I need, I need to fill up, or, well, these days you've got to do it yourself, but you fill the tank up and you just stay there. Well, that's not what cars are for. We all know that. Sometimes Christians are content to remain at the fueling station of the church all the time. Well, how often does a car need to be refueled? That depends. Different cars get better gas mileage than others. And I think spiritually, more mature Christians... Don't have to. I mean, they're not so dependent on spending as much time spiritually refueling with Christian fellowship than those who are less advanced. That is, we're able to stand on our own spiritual feet because we are more mature than when we first became a Christian. The Lord, however, watch this carefully before you misunderstand what I'm saying. The Lord requires certain periods of fellowship and spiritual refueling. I think that's why Hebrews 10.25 is still in the Bible. Forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. You know the passage. And these, we might note, are the minimum weekly requirements of refueling that every one of us needs. That is the minimum. But we need time with God's people. And the mature Christian may be able to devote more time to building relationships that will enable him to be the salt and the light in the world. 
And so we, we can with confidence and don't have to worry quite so much about is the world going to overtake me if I actually have friendships with people in the world. If I don't have any friendships with people in the world, then who am I ever going to lead to the Lord? You see, the need for balance. And fourth and lastly, there needs to be a balance. And this is kind of tricky, so stay with me. There needs to be a balance between church and family. And I know that the first reaction to that statement is, well, I don't see that they are in competition. And they shouldn't be, obviously. But there is still a need for us to appreciate that a balance must be achieved. One lady once told her elders, I'm starting to resent the church because it's taken my husband away from me. And the elders got to talking among themselves And several women came to the eldership in a six-month span saying basically the same thing. My husband is never at home anymore because he's busy doing this or that down at church. And it caused them to reevaluate some of the church's programming and activities. And it was found that there was a variety of activities. The church was undergoing a building program, especially the guys that had any kind of uh, expertise in construction were spending some time and trying to do as much of the labor in that building program as they possibly could. There were athletic events. They had ball teams, you know, that were going on that required one or two nights per week. There were visitation opportunities. There were committee meetings. And, and there were other functions that were tying up some of those men in that congregation as much as four or five nights a week. No wonder some of the women were feeling like widows. And it was obvious that over-involvement in church activities was contributing to the deterioration of the homes that make up that family. Does that make sense? And so they were hurting because the homes were hurting. A church, watch this, a church will only be as strong as the families that comprise that church. And so those elders were wise enough to see that and to reevaluate, yeah, we really are pulling the men out of their homes, way too much to do church work. I never forget Midmack Night from Midland, Texas, preaching in a meeting in Chattanooga, Tennessee, when I lived up there, saying, and I quote as, be- as verbatim as I possibly can, the devil doesn't care how much church work we're doing as long as we don't ever lead anyone to the Lord. That includes our own families. You know, we, we, we can do church work six, seven nights a week, theoretically, but we've got to have some balance in our lives and, and our families can hurt, be hurt when we're spending too much time in those areas of service and not enough time being moms and dads the way God designed us and told us to be. So changes were made accordingly in that particular congregation. And I also beg you to remember something that I try to touch on from time to time and I said it just a few weeks ago but here it comes again. Training our children And the way that they should go is kingdom work. You do not ever feel guilty because you are spending your time as a mom or as a dad training your children in the way that they should go. Directing them in the paths of righteousness. That is kingdom work. And always remember what the church sign said because it's absolutely correct. If more moms and dads did their job, preachers would be out of work. And what a great day that would be. But the other extreme is we can spend all of our time with our physical families and never allot any meaningful time for service in the local congregation of God's people. Our first ministry, and I I, I use that word 
with discretion, but I'm using it literally. Our first ministry obligation is to our family. And, and we grant that. To a large degree, again, the success of the church is dependent upon the success of the homes that make up that church. So too many of our congregations are trying to do things for folks. And I realize I'm getting in dangerous water here, but I still believe this with all my heart. Too many congregations are trying to do things for the families in that church that ought to be done for the parents. Now, if you go home saying Randy is preaching against youth ministers and youth ministry, then you haven't heard me correctly because I I am grateful and praise God every day for the good youth minister that we have and the ministry that goes on in this congregation as a supplement to what moms and dads are doing. But folks, any time we allow that to substitute for what moms and dads ought to be doing in the home We've lost our balance. Amen? Is that right or wrong? And so that balance needs to be achieved. Do not depend on the church to raise your kids in the way of the Lord. There is no doubting the fact that strong family units make for strong churches. So when we invest our time in our family, we are in reality investing time in the building of the local church. And then we may, we should, in fact, participate in church activities together as family members. Did you hear me? We ought to participate in church activities together as families. The model, it seems, in the modern church, and I'm not excluding churches of Christ here, but I am including all of Christendom. The philosophy of some churches today seems that all the church programs need to be done by age group. You know? And so sometimes the one age group never has an opportunity to, to to rub elbows with the other age groups. And, and I think that's a mistake. That's just my opinion, but I, I think that's a mistake. A, a family of four can go to church together, and then at the church house door, they separate and go in four different directions and never see one another again until they get in the car to go home. We need to find ways to be involved as a family, even at church. Now, other considerations, of course, have to be taken into account. When you got a new baby in the house... And, and remember what I always say about small kids in the house, like having a blender with no lid on it. I understand how that works. But when you've got a new baby in the house, the wife especially, the husband to some degree, but the wife especially will not be able to share the same load of church responsibilities as she did when there were no kids in the house. It takes constant evaluation of, of, the, of the situation, of our circumstances, to find the best balance possible between family and church involvement. The family should not be used as an excuse for ignoring church work, but we should never use church work as an excuse for ignoring our families. And may I say parenthetically, especially preachers. How easy it is for preachers to jump on their white horse to go out and conquer the world, to save the world for Christ. And lose their own families. We need to rectify that situation. So that preachers do not have to make that choice. You know a spouse and children may grow to resent the church and, and the Lord. If they think the church is robbing them of time with their mom and, or dad or husband and, or, and, and wife. But then conversely if the family isn't showing by our involvement that we deem our service 
in the church to be of great importance, then the kids are never going to learn that priority in their lives either. So we've got to show them that the church is something that we, that we serve in, that we work in, and we don't just show up for worship and for Bible class. We've discussed a few of the balances I think that are necessary for a Christian to be spiritually fruitful. And obviously that list could be made on almost infinitely long, but don't worry, we, we're not going to do that tonight. Our desire to grow the fruit of righteousness in our lives and in our homes is going to cause us to guard against any kind of unbiblical extreme that could constitute fanaticism. That's, that's not what we're talking about. Tonight we're talking about balance. Uh, one time years ago, and I'm talking about many, many years ago, my younger sister Elisa and I were uh, at, a, at a playground and we, we decided to get on the teeter-totter. I don't know what y'all call them in Alabama. In Georgia, we always called them seesaws, but that kind of sounded like a donkey brain. But, uh, so let's call it a teeter-totter. And so we decided that would be a good idea. Now, you've got to remember that my younger sister, Elisa, and I, were, she was 15 years my junior, and about at the time, about one-third of my body weight. So you can imagine what happened when we jumped on the teeter-totter. She on one end and I on the other. She went straight up in the air and I went straight to the ground. That's where we stayed until we got off. The problem was imbalance. Imbalance will always be destructive and it will always hurt you. So for the Christian's continued usefulness as a producer of the right kind of spiritual fruit in our lives, balance is also absolutely necessary. Imbalance will always stop growth and spiritual progress. So I'm asking you tonight, have you given proper attention to spiritual matters? In fact, all of those questions of that nature could boil down to this one question. Can you truthfully say and or sing, it is well with my soul? Are you right with God tonight? And if you're not, we sing this song of invitation to encourage you to begin to follow Jesus as his disciple, to make that choice, to change your worldview, and to say, I'm going to walk with him and follow him to the best of my ability from this day forward. You do that by turning your back on sin and repentance, confessing his name, and being baptized to start your life all over again. Won't you come while we stand, while we sing? Without him I could do nothing. With